Welcome to Soul Talk, soulful conversations exploring who you are, why you're here, and how to live your most authentic life. My name is Coop Blackson, nationally best-selling author of You Are The One, transformational teacher, and your host. I invite you to subscribe to the Soul Talk podcast for weekly inspiration from me, where I will share with you some powerful ideas, thoughts, and practical life wisdom to help you live life more fully, freeing yourself from your past, reclaiming your power, and living your true life's purpose. You can also go to www.coopblackson.com, enter your name and email to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment. Let's get started with Soul Talk. Welcome back, folks. Welcome to another very special episode of the Soul Talk podcast. I'm actually very excited about today's episode. I'm about to interview someone that I've actually wanted to interview for quite a while. And uh, we finally managed to synchronize, make it happen across the ocean. He is a Buddhist monk, meditation teacher, uh, author of a couple of books, unless he's written something in the meanwhile, uh, How to Be Human uh, with Ruby Wax and Ashram Pura and his own book, A Monk's Guide to Happiness. Uh, Interestingly, I first heard about uh, the man I'm about to introduce to you uh, when I watched my fate, literally, it is my favorite movie of all time. Beyond the Matrix, Beyond Star Wars, uh, Doctor Strange. When I watched Doctor Strange, I was so blown away by the the movie, not because of the effects, but because of the depth, <clears throat> the wisdom, the way that I felt spirituality was so authentically weaved into the movie. And they're talking about meditation. And so when I started to do some research, I found out that there was this this monk who was actually a consultant on the set of this Marvel movie, teaching Benedict Cumberbatch and Tilda Swinton meditation techniques. And I started Googling him and researching him and uh, figured we have to have this, this man on Soul Talk. So folks, welcome to Soul Talk, Geelong Tupton. Geelong means senior monk. Welcome to the conversation. It's great to have you here today. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. It's great um, to meet you, finally. Yeah, finally, finally. Uh, it's, it's a real, real honor. Uh, I'm curious. I always like to kind of get a sense of people's stories. And uh, I think becoming a monk and a senior monk and meditation teacher is uh, an unorthodox path. It's not a path everyone takes. And I read also that you, uh, you were an actor at one time. And, and I thought, wow, what an interesting path from acting and entertainment to you know, now spirituality and being a monk and you've done several sort of intensive meditation retreats, uh, like was it six years, I think, in total? And I thought, wow, what an interesting part. So I'm really curious what your path has been to doing what you're doing now. I mean, did you grow up in a spiritual household and, and, and just tell me a bit, bit about like what led to you, you doing what you're doing now? Yeah, I grew up in a uh, Buddhist family, so both my parents are Buddhist. But actually, uh, during my childhood and my teenage years, I never thought about Buddhism. I never practiced it. It was just there in the background. And I never was at all interested in anything spiritual. I I never meditated or anything like that. But I kind of knew that Buddhism was uh, a good thing. It was just sort of there in the family background. And then I, I kind of went a bit off the rails in my late teens. I, I became 
quite uh, like into going to lots of parties and burning the candle at both ends and not, not looking after myself at all. And also I had horrible amounts of stress. Um, even at a young age, I was just too stressed and very unhappy, very anxious. I started to have panic attacks. I was really having a very, very bad time. And then it kind of reached fever pitch when I was living in New York and I was acting over there. And I literally had a, a very dramatic burnout. Like one day to the next, I woke up in the morning with wow. um, heart palpitations and uh, I couldn't get out of bed. I managed to get to a doctor and they said, you've got um, atrial fibrillation where you know the heart is beating very, very fast. And you've basically had a breakdown. You've, you've been um, not looking after yourself and you've, you're horrendously stressed. And this was, this was quite a shocking experience for me. And actually, I was, um, I was sick like that for several months. I think about wow. four or five months, I was really uh, just burned out and unable to do much. And so it was during that time that I started to think, you know, wow, you're, you're 21 years old and your, your life has really fallen apart. Mm. And you, what, what have you done to yourself? <laughs> Why have you ended up like this? And I, I was staying with my mum. She was looking after me, and she has all these. She had all these books about meditation, um, books by Tibetan lamas, and mm. that kind of thing. I started to read these books, and just the message in those books was really compelling because it was, it was telling me that you you can change, you can transform yourself. You every every single human and animal, every sentient being has tremendous potential tremendous power inside them that they don't know about and meditation is a way to kind of unlock that and also you know you could you you could live a life that is more to do with benefiting others instead of just serving the ego so these kind of two messages around meditation and compassion yeah. or service started to really inspire me mm. and then you know how things just always seem to happen at the right time right place yeah. So an old school friend was also staying uh, near us in the States. And she, she told me about a Buddhist monastery in Scotland where mm -hmm. they ju just started to um, allow people to become monks for a year, in one year, like a, a training program. And you don't have to stay any longer than that. You're just a monk for one year. And I heard about this and she said she was going to go. She was going to go and become a nun. And this was like my oldest friend from school. And wow. I said, I, I want to come with you. Take me with you because I'm so <laughs> desperate. And maybe this is the kind of like, rehab that I need. Oh, yeah. And so we went. I, got, I came back to the UK and managed to also see doctors here and get more help for my health problems and started to get better. And then I went to this monastery and literally three or four days later, I was a monk. But it was only going to be for a year. For one so year, yeah, it didn't feel like, like it was a huge, a huge commitment. It was going to be one year. I was so miserable and so desperate and so unwell. I, I was open to anything that would help me. Mm -hmm. And during that year, my health improved and I started to calm down and feel more at peace. And my friend actually finished her year and left, but I decided to stay. Wow. And I decided to try another year. So I, kind of, I, I went through a, you know, like a vow-taking ceremony to become a monk for a second year. And during that second year, I started to really think more deeply, maybe this is actually what I'd like to do for my whole life. 
in, in, in that year, what, 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 like, what were you doing in that year? Like, what was, give me a sense of your routine, your schedule. What were you doing? Meditating kind of just to, so, so I can kind of see a, a picture of what was going on. In the first year, I was doing like little bits of meditation during the day, but also you're, you're in the monastery and you're doing bits of work for the monastery, like some of the monks work in the kitchen or the garden or whatever. So I was sort of living quite a peaceful life but, and just doing little bits of meditation throughout the day. But it was in the second year that I went deeper. I decided mm. to lock myself away into a solitary retreat for nine months. Mm. And during those nine months, I was completely alone and I was doing a very full schedule of meditation. I mean, you're doing you know, 12, 12 hours a day maybe of meditation. Wow. And so you really are just alone with your mind in a small room. And it was during that, that was the first retreat I'd ever tried. It was during that time that I started to question my life and question my values. And I was starting to think, well, am I, I going to finish this and then go back to New York and pick up where I left off? And it just felt to me like that wasn't the path for me. And I started to feel the spiritual path is, is for me more valuable. And there's no judgment on people who live other lifestyles at all. It's just for me, it felt this is, this is something that feel that resonates in my bones. I can feel it as something that I'm meant to be doing. And that's when I decided to take full vows to be a, a lifelong monk. And so quite soon after that retreat, I, I, um, took the vows and began, have been a monk ever since. It's now been 20, 26 years I've been a monk. Was there, was there any fear? Because it doesn't, as you're talking, it doesn't sound like there was some fear because usually a, a, a life choice like that, that feels like a death of an old identity in life often is scary for us as human beings. Was there any fear? Was, did you have to overcome any any? resistance inside yourself or, or was it just just an open sort of door within yourself oh there was definitely lots of fear i mean the way i talk about it now uh you know i'm very settled into this so that's why you you don't hear fear or doubt in my voice about it but at that yeah. time i was terrified yeah. because there was a part of me that felt this is the life i'm meant to live and it feels right and it feels beneficial but then there's another part of me thinking, no, I just want to run away and, and go to parties and have fun. And why, why, why would I live this restricted monk's life? It's not fair. There was two, two sides of me. Yes. Actually. Yes. And I think it just became so obvious to me that if I, if I left, it wouldn't be because I was leaving for something better. It was because mm. I found it too difficult. Mm. And when I realized that about what I was doing, I thought, well, you, you can't really leave because you can overcome the difficulty. You can start to enjoy this and benefit from it and maybe also help others. Mm. And so there was a lot of doubt, a lot of to and fro in my mind. But then when I actually finally took the vows, I remember straight after the ceremony, I felt all the cells in my body click into place. Wow. Literally, I felt like everything just came home and I felt completely oh, this is, I've arrived. This is, this is what I, this is what I'm doing with my life. And it feels right. Wow. And sure. Wow. After that, there were moments of doubt. There's all, I think it's really healthy to have yeah. doubt and to question your path. And, 
And also in Buddhism, you're encouraged to question Buddhism all the time. You're encouraged mm. never to have mm. blind faith. You're encouraged to mm. really pick it apart and say, well, is this true or is it just rubbish mm. or what? And mm -hmm. that questioning and doubt is really healthy, I think. Mm. Mm. How do you not allow the, the, the doubt to hijack you and take over? Because I think many times there's things we know inside we need to do, we need to shift, we need to change. Uh, places that things we're doing that are not in alignment, but we allow this fear and doubt to to hijack us. And sometimes, you know, sometimes it's like, okay, we 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 we're so in fear, we don't even know. We actually think that what we think is actually real until we do the thing that we, our mind is convincing us to do. Then we realize, oh my god, I was just, I was, I was in a crazy moment, and so. How does, one, how does one discern and how does one move through the, the emotion that arises in that moment of fear that seems so real in the moment? You know, it's so real. And then we start rationalizing, yeah, why we should follow this path of fear. And so how do we get out of our own craziness and, deal, and, and truly navigate ourselves so we don't allow fear to take over? Well, I was very lucky because during all those periods, I was doing retreats and meditating all day. So I had all these tools at my disposal. Right. So you're, you can be going completely crazy with doubt and thinking, uh, this is too difficult. I want to run away. I want to get away from here. I, I, I can't handle this. But then while you're having those thoughts, you're also involved in a really full schedule of meditation practice. Mm. So you've got all these tools through which you're looking at your mind and training yourself to to learn not to let those thoughts have so much power over you and to learn to kind of tap into your 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 deeper mind your sense of what's what's right for you and yeah. like instead of what uh being thrown about by the waves you're kind of going into the deep ocean under the waves and mm. and you keep getting lost in the waves then you keep going down into the ocean up and down up and down and that meditation gives you a bedrock of stability that helps you go through those doubts. Yeah. And because you're observing your mind so much during the day, when you're living in a monastery, you're really studying your own mind. You, you, you really start to develop a different relationship with it. You, you have to eventually start to learn not to take it too seriously because right, right. you're with it all day. <laughs> and and, and you, you've got to learn to, to, to put it in its place. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You talk about meditation and uh, I know you, you know, how one of the ways I found out about you was doing some research in, into the Doctor Strange movie and found out, wow, here's this guy who was teaching meditation to the actors. And, and so I guess what is meditation? Because there's so many different thoughts of meditation. Now there's apps where you can listen to music and visualize things. And, 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 and I think a lot of people want to meditate, but they think, well, I just can't meditate. I'm not a good meditator. It's too difficult to meditate. And so we know we should meditate, but we struggle to meditate. And yet then we beat ourselves up for not meditating. So I guess what is meditation? And why, why do we, even if we know it's good for us, what is this resistance to like, just meditating, you know, what is that resistance and how do we move through that? 
I think there's a lot of resistance, and I, I totally agree with you. People generally know it's good for them, but they find it really hard to do it, or they think they're really bad at it, or they, they think they're failing at it. Yes. And I think the main reason for that is they maybe don't know what it is. So, so maybe the definition of meditation is, is misunderstood by many people. Maybe they think it's something it's not. I think the main problem here is that a lot of people think meditation is about clearing the mind. Right. Sort of removing the thoughts. I mean, they think it's almost like putting yourself in a trance where, where you, you kind of go unconscious. Yes. And that's a very commonly held belief system about meditation, that you sit down, you clear your mind, you blank out your thoughts, you kind of go empty. And that's a huge problem because you sit down and try and do that and within three seconds, the thoughts are just rampant. I mean, they're just flooding in and they can be really mundane thoughts like, did I feed the cat? Or when is this session going to be over? Or they can be huge emotions or whatever. But basically, there's just a constant, constant thoughts. And then you feel like a failure because you think, well, how do I get rid of these thoughts? But the whole problem is based on that misunderstanding that you, the person thought, oh, I'm supposed to sit down and, and just still my mind. So it's not that. It, it's not about removing the thoughts, but it's definitely about um, awareness. It's about being able to step back and observe the thoughts. And if you understand that awareness is the most important thing, then the object of the awareness, the thoughts, is secondary. It doesn't matter if you've got a billion thoughts or five thoughts or one thought or no thoughts. The key point is you ha you're aware, you're seeing what the mind is doing. But that's very hard to do, isn't it? Because we're so lost in the thoughts. So to yeah. step back and just see them <clears throat> is really, really hard. So that's why within the meditation um, system, there's a, a graded path, a training process, where you start by learning just to focus on something else other than, other than the thoughts, that you give yourself an anchor to hold on to. Mm. And that's why the most common meditation technique is breathing, mm. focusing on your breathing. Focusing on the breath. Yeah, because your, your breath is happening all the time, 24-7. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. But we don't notice it much. I mean, we notice it if we're out of breath, if we're running up mm -hmm. a flight of stairs or something. But just to breathe normally, just naturally, without any effort, and to focus on that means that you are going to calm down because you're in that stillness of the present moment. And then the thoughts do turn up, like within a few seconds, the mind starts wondering. Mm. But the whole point is you then bring your attention gently back to the breath. Mm. And so when your mind gets lost in thought, and then you return to the breath, it's that mm. returning that makes you stronger. Mm. Because when you return to the breath, you are learning to let go of the thoughts that took you away from the breath. So you're creating some space and almost like a relationship between you and your thoughts. Right. So you are not those thoughts. Yeah. You are the awareness that is able to detach from the thought and come back to the breath. Mm -hmm. So this changes the dynamic between you and your thoughts and emotions. And mm -hmm. through training like that regularly, the relationship will start to change. Mm -hmm. So the goal is, isn't to get rid of thoughts, to push them away, to, to, to have no thoughts. That's not, that's just to be clear. That's not the goal of meditation. That's not the goal. And if that were the goal, then you could say that um, 
knocking yourself out unconscious or uh, being under anesthesia would be a spiritual practice. But of course, it's not. Just to kind of knock yourself unconscious means you're just blank. And as I explained, it's impossible anyway to, to stop those thoughts. So the goal is to develop greater awareness. The goal is to be able to step back and not be so controlled by all those thoughts. Mm. And so that then we can develop a greater sense of mental choice, mental freedom, so that over time, perhaps we can choose to cultivate positive, beneficial, compassionate, wise thoughts and to choose to step out of our negative habits. Yeah. All about mental flexibility. Yeah. Beautiful. I I think, you know, we're in a, interesting time right now where you know the, the pandemic has, has has really created a lot of uncertainty for people and and i think people feel challenged because they're looking into the future and it's so hard to plan it's so hard to have any sense of certainty about okay in a few months maybe i can go here i can do this and so could you provide some guidance in terms of you know, how people can find uh, maybe some grounding, some sense of peace during this time when they're looking into their future and everything seems so radically uncertain. Yeah, we are going through very, very challenging times. This this, uh, COVID pandemic and lockdowns and the stress and worry and fear, it's it's really, really difficult. But I, I do think that each one of us can find a way to 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 find some positives in the situation we're in because it's happening anyway so we may as well use it in a productive way and it can be a moment-to-moment thing where you, where you start to just train yourself in being more present mm. and yes in the bigger picture there's a global pandemic and there's terrible things happening but in this moment we can be sitting and just being in the moment, drinking our tea, looking at the flowers, whatever. It's those moments of being present can really balance things out. And also changing our attitude about what, what's going on. I mean, seeing the, th- the things that we find stressful, we can actually use as meditation tools. So, for example, mm-hmm. the, whole, the whole concept of being stuck at home, being in lockdown yes. or iso- self-isolation or quarantine, well, that can be reframed as a meditation retreat. Wow. Right. Right. You know, it's people, people go to meditation retreats. They take time. They spend money to go on retreat in a way it's been handed to us on a plate. (laughs) Um, um, So could we use the time of isolation or quarantine to do a lot of meditation? And Mm. um, because the whole point of retreat is you're in an enclosed space. You don't mix with the outside world for that period of time. You're very, undistracted you've got time to meditate a lot so seeing it like that could change the the reality for us mm. and then things like uh just the, the the way we have to live now with washing our hands all the time yes i mean pe- people we know we have to do that now and then people are, are, are struggling and saying oh i have to wash my hands so often but why not turn that into a mindfulness exercise mm. why not decide mm. every time i wash my hands i'm going to meditate while washing my hands that is meditation mm. in action. Mm. You know, meditation isn't just about sitting on a, on a chair or a cushion. It's about having mindful moments throughout the day. So 
while you're washing your hands, you could wash your hands with full awareness, full attention. And it means you're going into a mindful state while washing your hands. And mm. I mean, things like wearing masks, again, people have to wear masks and then there's a lot of resistance or a feeling that yeah. they don't want to, but you can turn that into a compassion exercise. You can think I'm wearing this mask hmm. to protect those around me. I'm wearing these, this mask as a sign of compassion and love. Mm. I'm, I'm doing this for others. I'm connecting with others. The mask, in one sense, it feels like we're all cut off from each other. We're not, you know, social distance. We're not touching <clears throat> each other. We're not hugging each other. We're wearing masks. But on an emotional level, we're wearing the mask out of love for those around us. So it's a huge connection. Mm. You can reframe your reality into something more positive. Yeah. In any, in any situation, I think. I love that. You, I love the, this idea of using everything as a opportunity for meditation, you know, washing one's hands, a brutal presence to that moment. Uh, even this whole idea of rather than losing the idea of you like reframe it as a compassion exercise. That's, that's beautiful. It's beautiful. Yeah. I, I like meditating when I'm stuck in traffic. <laughs> It's stuck in traffic. Normally it's an irritating moment and you feel wound up. You want the traffic to move. But if you actually go into a mindful state while you're sitting in the car stuck in traffic, you're learning how to meet resistance with a calm, welcoming attitude. And this kind of changes your internal chemistry because you learn that you're teaching yourself that a stressful moment can be met in a compassionate, calm way. And this changes how you react to other types of stress. Mm. Talk to me about, like, a lot of people I think are getting triggered now, especially during this time. People that have opinions and political beliefs, different ways of seeing things, and our society seems to be becoming more polarized, at least in the US. You know, I'm not sure how it is in the UK. And so in terms of compassion, like when someone... When you encounter someone who has such a, let's say, polar opposite belief, when you encounter someone that triggers you like crazy or challenges you, pushes your button, buttons, and maybe you don't feel compassion for them, maybe you feel rage or hate, I'm curious how you could guide us to access more compassion for people we don't feel that compassion for you know a president a politician a prime minister or, or family member like how can we begin to 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 touch into that compassion for another when when, when we feel the opposite well i i think it's very helpful to see compassion as a trainable skill Mm -hmm. It's not just a feeling that comes and goes, but it's a skill that we want to develop, almost like building muscle. So, so I see the whole process of meditation training, compassion training, in the same way as I would see going to the gym and building muscle. You, you want to exercise regularly so that you, you grow that muscle. So we want to grow the muscle of compassion because yes. we know it's something that's very healthy for us and healthy for the world around us. It's a win-win situation. The, the more compassion and understanding we have, the happier we can become and the more we can connect to others. So mm. if you start to see compassion as a skill that you want to develop, then you start to see your, I mean, let's call them enemies. 
I mean, that's a harsh mm-hmm. term, but you know, the, the other, the person who you demonize, the person you, you feel is the enemy or is wrong, or you, you, you hate them or they trigger you, you start to see them as very helpful allies in your compassion development. Mm. Because if, if you want to develop compassion, you've got to have something that pushes your buttons so that you can learn that forgiveness and learn that understanding. So the person who pushes your buttons is, is in, in a way your greatest teacher because they are showing you uh, uh, or they're, they're, they're presenting you with something that you, you can work with in order to develop greater understanding. So you're almost grateful to them. I don't mean you become a doormat and you let them abuse you. I just mean mentally inside you have a feeling of curiosity about this relationship whether it's somebody you know or whether it's a public figure that you despise you're thinking well actually this is pressing my buttons and maybe i can change my attitude i don't have to agree with them i don't have to think what they do is okay but maybe i can start to see that they are suffering too in the same way that the human condition is often filled with suffering and confusion and so they are caught up in their own fantasy about what's right and what's wrong. And they, they are caught up in their own past as well. What is it, what happened in that person's upbringing that has created this? Maybe we see them as a monster. We see them, this monster today. They weren't always a monster. At one point they were a, a innocent baby in their cot, just gurgling mm-hmm. and crying. So something has happened to that person, their upbringing, their history, their, what's gone on in their life that's brought them to this point. And they're not really in control of that. They are a product of all their experiences and they have an untrained mind. Mm. And so you forgive because you see that they're not really out to get you or they're not deliberately being the way they are. They're just caught up in their own craziness. And this, this creates a lot of um, less judgment. Mm. I think if you meditate every day and you start to see how wild the mind is. Yes it makes you more humble because you sit down and you think, well, I can't even keep my mind on my breath for more than a few seconds. And then I fail. I'm starting to think about other stuff. It shows, it shows us how out of control we are on one level. And Mm. this gives, this creates a sense of humility and a sense of, well, this is the human condition and everybody is, is caught up in their own mental habits. Mm. almost helpless. I don't mean this is a way, I don't mean to condone the things that other people do and say, oh, well, they can't help it. It doesn't matter. I just mean that if you understand them and see them as somebody who's suffering and struggling, it takes away the rage. Mm. And instead there's a feeling of, well, I'd like to help them and I'd like to communicate with them and see where they're coming from. And Mm. then a real conversation can happen and then change can happen. Mm. Wow. Beautiful. So yeah, during this this time, I think so many folks are dealing with a sense of loss and, and loss of a dream, loss of businesses, loss of what they thought things were going to be. And with the virus, this this idea of death seems to be much more present for us in terms of our own mortality. And so could you share some thoughts on dealing with loss of dream and identity, what we thought was going to be, which is a death in itself, but also how do we make peace with our mortality and death in reality in life? I think there are two things um, I could say here. One is that uh, we could start to reflect on how we've been living up till now 
And it's almost as if this lockdown period, it, I, I said already, it's like a retreat. So you kind of reflect on how you've been living up, up till now. And when it's over, when we come out of this period, uh, how do we want to live differently? Because there's no point saying I want to get back to normal because normal wasn't working, you know, nor mm. normal. There were so right. many things in, in our society that were just wrong and unhealthy and toxic. And this is the time now to make changes, isn't it? Yes. Um, but I think it's about then reflecting on up till now, we've been making this constant assumption that happiness comes from outside. Mm. That, that happiness comes from material things. Happiness comes from the world around us. We're completely losing our own power in that situation. We're, we're forgetting that happiness is a state of mind that you can cultivate from within. So when all these things are taken away from us, all the things that, all the building blocks that we used at, to rely on for our happiness, and now they're kind of gone or there's a threat that they might go, this is the chance for us to, to look within and find that everything we always wanted was already inside us in our minds mm. because mm. happiness is a state of mind. Mm. It, it's, it's a mental state that we can, we can cultivate from within. We think we need this and we need that. And we're constantly searching for happiness outside. Yes. But we, we never find it because the, the search for happiness creates more of a search because searching yes. more searching. So, we're never satisfied. And of course, that's how our society is run through dissatisfaction. Everybody's mm. walking around dissatisfied, which makes them want more. And that, that keeps the wheels turning of advertising and commerce and business, make people want more. Nobody's satisfied. Well, now we can actually take charge of our own minds and, dis and discover that satisfaction is a state of mind accessible through meditation. And that gives us inner strength and independence and so, of course, there are traumatic things happening. People are losing their business. People are losing their jobs. They have kids to feed. They have bills to pay. I'm not saying it's so easy that you can just kind of live under a tree and just let go. Of course, mm. there's, there's stress and trauma. But the more we can contact inner peace and inner happiness, the more resilience and strength we'll have to deal with these outer um, conditions that are challenging yeah and then of course you touched on on death and and death. and yeah, yeah we are we, people are uh, reading the news every day and there's the death rate there's the uh you know it's like it, it, it we're constantly faced now with 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 death but it's always been there we just never looked at it mm. and to look at it like this and to to realize that we are fragile and we are mortal and we are ephemeral it can, that can be a very depressing, very freaky thought, or it can be something that encourages you to seize the moment and live this day as if it's your last. And that can completely transform your relationships because you can start you know, all these arguments and, and conflicts we have with our families, with our partners, with our friends. You can think, well, life is short. Life is, is fragile do I want my last conversation with this person to be like this? No, mm. I want mm. to have, uh, I want to resolve things. I want it to be positive because we don't know when we'll see them again. So what I'm trying to suggest here is that the, the, the awareness of death and impermanence could actually make our, us live our lives more fully and, and take the moment as this is all we have. Let's enjoy it. Let's use it for in a productive way. Let's use it, to make the world a better place that let's use our lives while we have them. 
Mm. Mm. I love that. I'm curious. I've always wanted to sort of ask you this question. Um, when I, you know, when I've read about Buddha, I hear the word enlightenment. And it feels like this holy grail of spirituality to attain enlightenment. And I, I, I would like to know, like, Captain, what is enlightenment? What does it mean? It feels like you get on the spiritual path to, to like, get to some state of enlightenment. You talk about happiness, you know, coming from things outside. Sometimes it feels as though, like, when we finally get to be enlightened, then we're going to be happy and all our problems will be solved. So based on all of your study and spiritual practice and learning, what, what, what is enlightenment? What is this thing that we talk about? What is your experience of it? Uh, I love your perspective there. Well, I, I can't answer that question because I, I'm not enlightened. So I have no <laughs> idea what it feels like. I mean, we read about it in books and we read about the Buddha and we think, wow, that must be incredible. But how can we even conceptualize it? Because we're not there. Mm. I'm not there. And so I have no idea what it, feel, what it feels like. But the reality of it is for, for somebody who meditates or for, you know, for a Buddhist, we don't sit around worrying about enlightenment all the time, thinking, well, when's it going to happen? You know, I've got to get there. I, I'm not, I, I can't start living until I'm enlightened. We don't think of it like that. We see enlightenment as you know, awakening from the sleep of ignorance and reaching one's full potential. But we think that could take thousands of years because, of course, we believe in reincarnation. So we believe that this life is just one step on the journey and it's highly unlikely that we'll get enlightened in this life. It's probably going to happen in a future life, but it's, it's almost like building blocks life after life, but developing one's spiritual training and picking up where we left off in the next life. So I remember one of my teachers once said, if you just improve yourself by 1% in each life, in 100 lives, you'll be perfect. <laughs> and I, I find that I really encouraging. That. I find I that, really, that it's really encouraging because there is this paradox in Buddhism of having no goal and letting go, and then mm. there is a goal, the goal of enlightenment. So how do you marry those two things? That no goal and yes, there is a goal. Mm. We see the goal as something so far away that we don't have to worry about it. We're just going to live each day and evolve slowly. And yeah, along the path we could start to become more happy, start to yes. become passionate and start to develop skills um, that we didn't have before, skills around our relationships, our relationship with stress, our mental focus. So, so those things we can start to develop. It's not that we're going to be just miserable until we become enlightened and then it's like a light bulb going off. Mm. I think it's more like peeling an onion and getting rid of the layers of confusion and enjoying the the the, the the process rather than looking for a result. I love that. You mentioned reincarnation and, uh, you know, I guess some people may believe in it. Some people may not believe in it. I guess I'd like you to, to, to break down, maybe give a, a, a bit of an explanation. Like what is reincarnation and what is, I guess, what is it that continues to the next life? Is it uh, 
the soul? Is, is, is like, what, what is it that has the continuity into the next life and the lifetime and the lifetime and the lifetime? I mean, is it, I'm not so clear about that piece. Well, again, you're asking a huge question and, and I'm, I'm just a small, a small person who doesn't have much uh, knowledge or wisdom, so I, so I can't answer it, but I can tell you what I've studied and what I've heard yes, from yes. the teachers. And, uh, it's something I've struggled with. You know, as a Westerner practicing Buddhism, you know, people who are born in the East are born in a culture that kind of automatically believes in reincarnation. But, mm. you know, I, I was a guy who grew up in North London and then <laughs> moved to New York, and I, I'm from this culture, and it's, a, it's something that isn't natural to me to think about reincarnation. Then I became a Buddhist monk, and it's a kind of <clears throat> given that within Buddhism one believes in that. Mm. But again, it's not something that a Buddhist sits around thinking about each day. It's, it, it's more that we're, this, is, this is the life we have now. Let's make the best of it. But it's good. It, we believe it's good to have that background knowledge that this isn't our only chance. Mm. We're going to come back again and hopefully continue where we left off. And what is it that get, gets reincarnated? Well, this is going into a very deep aspect of Buddhist philosophy where mm. they don't even like to use the word reincarnation because incarnation suggests there is a sort of incar in incarnating soul that is moving from life to life. They like to use the word rebirth because mm -hmm. some, it, it's not that there is something, it, it's more that this life causes the next like a knock-on effect. And what, what, what causes our next life is our habits of this life. Mm. So our habits, our emotions, our actions. In Buddhism, we call it karma. Karma means the, the, the cause and result of everything we do, everything we think, everything we say. We're creating the future. And so when we die, that has to go somewhere. It has to create something new in the same way that a flower when it dies, becomes a seed for a new flower. It doesn't just evaporate into nowhere. And mm. yes, the body dies. The body is just made up of flesh and bones and blood. But consciousness has to lead to something more. It has to create something new. And the habits and emotions and lessons that we need to learn, that they have to go somewhere. So we become a new body. It, it doesn't necessarily have to be human it could be animal it could be any life form mm. but we're going to come back and continue to learn mm. and i find that really encouraging because it makes me think well i don't have to get it all right in this life I, i'm just going to do my best and there'll be more chances in the future mm. and also it helps me to to think about why i am the way i am yes. um, because if you believe that you have previous lives, then you're going to be less judgmental about your own upbringing. You know, if this is the only life you have, yeah. you might start to blame your parents for everything and think, well, I was just uh, born like a blank canvas and then they did all this to me and now I've become like this. No, they're just a right. symptom of something that came from before. Right. And so it, it, it helps us to, to mm -hmm. let go of blame and just to see it as a kind of karmic process. But then I think we have to be really careful there of not applying judgment where, you know, if something horrible happens to you mm -hmm. and then you think, oh, this is, I deserve this. Yes, that's what I was going to ask. Especially ch small children who suffer. It's, 
it's just wrong to say, oh, well, it's their karma and they, they must have done something terrible. It's not, not that simple. It's much more complex than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, don't think, I don't think karma is like blame or judgment. It's simply action and reaction and mm-hmm. uh, emotion. And the whole point of it is, is that you can change anything in this moment. You are not mm-hmm. a slave of your karma. You can transform it. So you, you, you bring up a point about let small children, uh, uh, maybe a kid that's been sexually molested or trafficked or just, you know, beaten daily by their, you know, mother or father or someone in the family. Like, why does that happen? Because we often hear, oh, it's just his karma, her karma. Like, why do, why do these things happen? Why does suffering or why do things that seem just unjust like that happen to kids like is it i guess is it a necessary part of life i mean it happens so i guess maybe on some level it's necessary but can you shed some light on that because i think it's really hard for us to understand why why certain things happen to for instance children it is it is very hard and it's truly awful it's awful to hear about uh, small children suffering and we hear about terrible terrible things and it's too simplistic to say oh that's their karma because then that sounds like mm-hmm. a huge judgment that that small child did something terrible in a previous life and is now getting their, their yes. karma i don't think it works like that i don't i never read teachings in buddhism that say that it's that simple it's it's much more complex than that and mm-hmm. it's impossible to answer the question why because there's, there's such a complex um, set of causes and conditions that create reality. But what is possible to answer is how are we going to deal with it right now and how are we going to view it? Mm. And the view is that all of these situations are giving us an opportunity to practice compassion and to help mm. others. It shocks mm. us out of our comfort zone and makes us think we need to get out there and help people. We need to change our system. We need to change the education system because the people who are, um, who are the bullies and are the abusers and are doing wrong in this world, they have been created through, 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 through the systems they found themselves in. And mm. if we can change the system, so what I believe is that we need to get meditation into schools, we need mm-hmm. to get meditation into healthcare, we need yes. to get people to, to be able to use these mental transformation techniques so that the future generations can grow up and not be bullies and not be abusers. Um, mm. And then when we look at those who are suffering, we can feel terribly sad about it, or we can think this is something that is pushing me to get out there and help others. This, mm. this, this child I see suffering is giving me a reminder that there is suffering in this world and I must get out there and do some good. Yeah. I must protect others. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't really answered that question very well, but it's, it's a confusing one. It's a tough one, question. It's one I struggle with, but I just have to think, okay, what am I going to do now? I'm yeah. going to try and help others. I'm going to try and make a difference to, to the world around mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. And hopefully that will have a knock on effect, a ripple effect over time that will benefit mm-hmm. others in a bigger way mm, mm. that's a that's definitely a, an empowering way way to look at it um you mentioned karma and so now you have me curious this might seem like a bit of a a western question uh Tupton, so please forgive me but uh, i think i'm just kind of 
guided to ask it. Uh, Are there things that we can do as human beings to create good karma for ourselves? Like if we say, okay, listen to this conversation, I want to recreate amazing karma for myself. Let's say the next 40 year life, you know, karmic riches in the future. Uh, it might seem like a strange question, but I, I don't know. Are there, are there things that we can do to create good karma for our future and ourselves and our families? I don't think it's a strange question at all. I think it's, 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 it's really the whole point of understanding mm. karma is to realize that you are, you are creating your own future in each moment. Mm. So, I mean, there, there's a famous Buddhist saying uh, where they say, you don't need um, past life regression therapy to find out what you were. And you, don't <laughs> need, and you don't need fortune tellers to find out what you will be. All mm. you need to do is look in the mirror right now because you right now are the result of what you were and you're the mm. cause of what you will be. So right now you can change everything and you can create positive karma. In fact, every time we meditate, we're sowing the seeds for enlightenment. We're sowing the Mm. seeds for awakening. We're sowing the seeds for mental growth. So every positive action we do creates a positive trend in the future. And then all the suffering we have, we could say, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm full of pain and suffering. I must have such terrible karma. That's not the only way to look at it. You can also think, well, I can learn from this. I can learn from my suffering. I can grow through this. I, I don't have to be a victim. I don't have to be tormented and, and damaged by what's happening to me. I can actually turn it to the good. I can, I mean, wouldn't you say that many people enter a spiritual path through suffering? So the suffering yes. is actually quite useful. I mean, I look back on my own history and I look at that breakdown I had in my early 20s. That was the most incredible thing that ever happened to me because it, it changed my life mm-hmm. in a good way. At the time, if somebody had said that to me, I would have punched them and said, don't tell me this is good. But looking back, you you think, wow, the pain and suffering I've been through isn't all terrible. It's enabled me to grow. So there is no such thing as as good or bad intrinsically. It's how you view it, isn't it? Yes, yes, yes. God. Uh, Final few questions. Um, I'm really loving this conversation. Um, How do you keep your... How do you keep yourself? Um, how do you stay humble? You know, you 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 you've spoken at. I was looking at your bio, uh, Google, LinkedIn, Lloyds Bank, Deutsche, Siemens, Accenture companies. You know, you consultant on 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 movies and uh, festivals, speaking at festivals, and you know, writing books and. You, you, you know, on some level, relatively, you are a success, you know, and I'm wondering, how do you stay humble? How, 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 and I think this is for those listening. How, how do we stay humble in the world we, when we become successful? Well, it may, uh, it may look like I'm successful, but in the Buddhist <laughs> world, I'm, I'm not successful at all. Because uh. in, in, in the Buddhist world, you know, in terms of myself, in the monastery and with my teachers, 
they don't see any of that as a success. What they see as success mm. is when, if I can sort my head out and become a happier kind of person. That mm. that's what is is impressive. Not not how many lectures you've given or books you've written. They don't mm. care about that. So that keeps me grounded because when I go back to the monastery, I'm just I'm just me. I'm just an ordinary monk who's trying my best and uh, trying to do the good, the right thing. But my teachers are so much more involved than me and they've achieved <laughs> so much more. I'm just like a tiny ant or a mouse compared to an elephant. So that keeps me <laughs> really grounded. <laughs> and you know, the other thing that keeps me grounded is, is like right now I, I haven't been very busy because we've all been in lockdown, but generally I'm really busy and I'm teaching every day. And I'm not only teaching mm. in those kind of glamorous corporate situations. I also yep. teach in prisons and hospitals and drug rehab centers and very busy schools. Mm. So being really busy and doing a lot of that, it takes the glamour away from it and it just becomes mm. what you're doing. And you, you don't really have time to think about it too much and to think, oh, is, mm. this, is this success or not? You're just doing it and you're trying to serve others. And that takes, takes away the kind of um, excitement factor and makes it just what you do. And then it becomes yeah. more easy to deal with. And I really enjoy it. I mean, when I'm teaching, I feel very... I mean, I don't really call it teaching. I'm kind of just talking and sharing stuff. Uh, mm. When I'm in that zone, I feel very um, at peace in myself and I'm connecting with others and I'm trying to give them something loving and compassionate. And I really enjoy that. Mm. How do you define success for yourself? Do you have a definition of where you, you see success, hold success? For me, success is all about the mind and about mental development. So I know I've got a lot of training still to do i mean I, i've been mm. a monk for many years i've done meditation but not to a high degree and i can see that i've i still get stressed and i still get upset and i have uh, emotional issues that i still need to work with so success for me is not like a something like a light bulb moment in the future it's a, over time just becoming more wise and becoming more kind and more compassionate that to me would be a sign of success and I'm not there yet. And that, that's mm. good. It keeps, keeps me grounded <laughs> to see, you know, when you meditate every day, you can't really fool yourself that much. You can see how confused you are. And so even if, you know, as a monk, I waft around in my robes and I sit on uh, stages <laughs> and give talks, but going back to my room and meditating and seeing the mess of my own mind, it's very hard to, to, um, to pretend that something you're, something you're not. I, <laughs> I love it. I love it. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just touched just by your authenticity and, and just your sharing. It's, it's really beautiful. You know, final question. If, if you know, you've shared so much uh, with us today, um, so much insight, wisdom, and I think things we can take away and use. If there were, if you were to look at your entire life and if there were, and some of this might overlap, but if there were three uh, lessons that you would feel the most important lessons in your life that, that if you could only pass these three insights to the next generation that you feel would evolve the consciousness of the next generation, the children and their children the most, uh, I guess what your three uh, most important life lessons, life wisdoms would be. Well, I'd say the main one actually is, is mm. to learn that, that happiness is a yes. choice. It's a choice. It's something you you can choose mm. through, tra through 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 transforming your mind. It, it's a, mm -hmm. a mental. It's a mental state. It's an emotional state. You can cultivate that. 
And then the second one is kind of leading on from that is that actually happiness can grow in the darkest places mm. in that the, the suffering you experience can be the very thing that teaches you how to be happy. Because when you learn to meet your own internal darkness with love, kindness, and compassion, and the resistance drops away, that, that's the fastest path to happiness because you are going straight into the areas of yourself that you normally push away. I mean, I, I, I'm not saying I've mastered this at all, but I learned a little bit of it when I did a very long retreat. I was in a retreat that was four years long wow. um, about 10 years ago. And in that retreat, I really had a really hard time for the first two, two and a half years. I experienced horrendous amounts of depression and anxiety. I started to have those panic attacks again that I'd had before I was a monk. Mm. And it was absolute hell for the first half of the retreat. But then in the second half of the retreat, I learned how to sit with those feelings and not push them away and actually sort of almost give those parts of myself that I'd rejected and hated to give those parts love and kindness and compassion. Mm. Mm. And through that, a, a, a new kind of happiness started to emerge. So it, mm -hmm. it showed me that if you can uh, accept the parts of yourself that you dislike and find disgusting, they transform in, in a way you can start to become happier. Yes. I'm still learning this, but it's, it's an amazing lesson. So, yeah. okay, so you said three things. So, so the three first things. one was happiness is a choice. The second one is, is that ha happiness comes from, um, can come from uh, suffering. Suffering mm. can be transformed almost like a, uh, in Buddhism, they use this image of the lotus flower that grows from the mud. Yes, yes. The beauty yes. grows out of the darkness. Mm. And then I think the third lesson I've learned or am still learning is that um, helping, helping others is incredibly fulfilling. Mm. You know, I, I always used to think that service and helping others and compassion and working for the benefit of others is more like a duty and it's something that we should do. But, but actually I find the more you do it, the more it helps you. So it's a win-win situation. <laughs> Compassion mm. benefits the world around you, but also benefits you. And even on a, on a, on a chemical level, it creates body chemistry within yourself, oxytocin and things like that, mm. that mm. make mm. you healthier and happier. So compassion is a win-win situation. It helps the world around you. It helps you. Mm. I love it, helping others. So happiness is a choice. Happiness can also grow in some of the darkest places, even through suffering. And uh, helping others is incredibly fulfilling. Beautiful. Yeah. Could, you, could you assign uh, uh, just maybe a, a very simple homework assignment, maybe something that folks can practice or do, like literally right now, as soon as they're done listening to this interview, something that they can just immediately apply in their life. Maybe it's breathing. Maybe it's just what's one thing that folks can do as a homework right now to maybe implement and embody what you've been sharing? Well, obviously, I'm going to say meditation uh, mm -hmm. to, to, get, to get a kind of daily meditation practice going. But, but I think even before that, a, more, a much more simple and much more urgent thing to do is to train our minds in gratitude and appreciation. 
because we're living in times now culturally where we're constantly fed messaging from the media yes. that we that we that we're not good enough and that we need more and that we can't be satisfied we can't be grateful we need to be ungrateful and dissatisfied because that will make us go and buy more things so we're we're constantly bombarded with information that makes us feel bad about life and bad about ourselves mm-hmm. so i think you can transform that by giving yourself homework which is every morning when you wake up think of five things i mean maybe start with three and then expand to five three mm. things that you feel grateful for and the next day three more things you can't repeat you've got to go for three more things and <laughs> and start doing five things a day or ten things a day and you start to discover that the things you took for granted like i have a roof over my head or i'm able to breathe or i made it through the night i'm still alive these basic mm. simple things that we take for granted are actually sources of incredible gratitude and if you train yourself in gratitude each day you start to enjoy your life because you realize mm. that everything around you you took for granted but it's actually what you have and what you have is all you need mm. what you have is all you need i love it heard yeah, it we, we can make a bumper sticker out of that that's <laughs> it almost sounds like a beetle song you know <laughs> it could be a it could be a song you write next thing i might hear uh, you've written a song <laughs> that, would be, that would be awesome uh thank you for sharing that folks you heard uh the homework assignment uh the gratitude exercise sounds so simple but i think during these times we're going through uh, the ability to train our hearts and our minds uh, into a access deeper sense of gratitude is such a simple and powerful thing. And, and uh, we're in a ripe moment for that. Uh, Tupton, I want to just thank you for just, just being so kind, you know, really just, we had some, a few technical challenges on, on today's call, but uh, your, your patience, your kindness is really, uh, <laughs> you know, not just what you said, but honestly, just your patience, kindness, and just, compassion for a few of the technical challenges we face today it's really touched me and uh has taught me a lot so thank you for just sharing yourself and your heart and what's the best way people can find out about just you your work just what's the best website that people can connect with you um well there's two things they, they can look me up online my name is gelong tupton and they they can look me up i think i have a website gelongtupton.com or they can read my book i've written a mm-hmm. book called a monk's guide to happiness Mm. And it's been out in the UK for a year, but it came out in the US last week mm. with um, St. Martin's Essentials. Um, so it's called A Monk's Guide to Happiness. And in there, people can read more about the things I've been saying. And there's also meditation methods in the book, practices. Um, yeah, you can find out awesome. more from the book. Awesome. So the book is, folks, A Monk's Guide to Happiness. Check it out now. I highly recommend it and gillongtupton.com. Folks will post uh, all of the information in the show notes and uh, thoroughly recommend you check out his amazing work. Once again, Tupton, thank you so much. Many blessings. And uh, folks, this has been a really awesome interview. Hope you took lots of notes and uh, make sure you do the, the simple, powerful gratitude daily practice find new things each day uh send me an email coopblackson at coopblackson.com i would love to know your key takeaways from today's interview 
also uh, spread this interview. I feel everyone needs to hear this, this interview full of insight and wisdom. So share it with your friends and your family on social media, send them the link. And uh, I look forward to connecting with you in next week's episode of Soul Talk. Love now. If you've enjoyed this episode of Soul Talk, please do share the podcast with all of your friends. Let everyone know and make sure you download Soul Talk today. I'm looking forward to next week where I'll get to share more inspiration with you. Meanwhile, follow me on Facebook, Instagram, or social media. You can find out more about my work at www.cooplaxon.com. If you feel ready to take your life to the next level, join me at my exclusive event in Bali, www.boundlessblissbali.com, where you can find out more and apply. Also, make sure to remember to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment at coopblackson.com. Sending you all big hugs and love now.